I would speak to you in the name of the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. From the words of the prophet Isaiah. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Today's reading from Isaiah speaks of worldly rulers and princes and the hope that some would harbor to overthrow them. In many ways, the passage reminds me of an article I saw in the print edition of the New York Times just a week ago today. The piece is entitled, The Unexpected Campaign of a Putin Opponent. And it tells the story of Boris B. Nadenzin. Nadenzin is a 60-year-old physicist who once served in the Russian parliament. Today, he hopes to be on the ballot in the upcoming pre Russian presidential election on March 15 through 17. He's running on an anti-war platform opposing Vladimir Putin because he sees a different vision for the country he loves. Nadezhdin believes that Putin's war with Ukraine is driving Russia off a cliff. By contrast, were he to be elected president, he would make peace with Ukraine, bring home the troops, release the pro political prisoners, restore freedom to the press, and repeal Russia's idiotic, his word, anti-gay laws. Nadezhdin envisions a Russia that is peaceful, free, and able to re-engage with Europe. Is he just a dreamer? Perhaps. The Kremlin has a way of rigging elections so that their chosen authoritarian leader wins every time. Political opponents are either puppets of the ruling party who take stands on meaningless issues to give the appearance of a genuine contest, or they are barred from the election, jailed, exiled, or worse. So no one gives Nadezhdin any chance of dethroning Putin. Nevertheless, so far, the mild-mannered physicist has been able to walk a fine line, and his movement appears to be growing. In order to be on the ballot, a candidate must secure 100,000 signatures from all over Russia, and this he has done. Supporters stood in long lines and braced themselves against sub-zero temperatures in order to record what they call their collective no to Putin. They are daring to hope for a better future for their country. Interestingly, Nadezhdin's name shares a common etymology with the Russian word for hope. He has become a beacon of hope to people who had forgotten how to hope. 
What strikes me as noteworthy about Nadezdin and his supporters is this notion of maintaining hope in a situation that seems hopeless. Today's Old Testament reading from Isaiah tells a similar story. We've heard the prophet addressing the people of Israel as they walked through a time of tremendous national and spiritual crisis. Many long decades ago, the Jews had been conquered by the Babylonians who sacked Jerusalem twice, ripped the people out of their homes and carried them off into exile. Those to whom Isaiah spoke in today's passage were the adult children, possibly the grandchildren and perhaps even the great-grandchildren of the original exiles. Many, if not most, had never even seen Jerusalem. But it wasn't hard for them to imagine its gilded beauty from the way their elders had constantly talked about it. Even though Jerusalem was far off and seemingly inaccessible, they yearned for it as they languished year after year in Babylonian internment camps. They hoped in their hopeless time. Even as they hoped, even as they languished, they asked the age-old question, why? Why does God whom the prophets tell us is all loving and all powerful, allow evil things like decades of exile happen to us? Why do despots declare that nation should take up arms against nation? Why do innocent civilians then and now lose their homes and lives to deviant schemes, the deviant schemes of dictators? Why do we suffer diseases of body and mind? Why do bad things happen to good people? The people lamented that the ways of God were hidden from them. Isaiah's response that we heard in today's reading might satisfy some. For others, it might raise more questions than it answers. Essentially, he told the people that God's ways were not hidden at all. In fact, they should be as plain as the earth beneath their feet and the sky above their heads. God is responsible for all of it, from stretching out the heavens like a curtain to bringing princes to naught, to taking down every ruler of the earth, to counting every grasshopper. Our minds simply cannot fathom how the times that try our souls fit into the grand scheme of God's intentions. So a little humility on our part would be in order. God's reply through Isaiah reminds me a bit of God's reply to Job. If you recall, Job suffered tremendous loss and dared to cry out to God in protest. Why? What's the meaning of it? Finally, God answered Job out of the whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. In other words, Job, a little humility. Fortunately, Isaiah wasn't finished. He wasn't content to chide the people for misunderstanding God's ways as they suffered through exile. No, he meant to encourage them, to hold out for them a vision that would give them hope. You heard this vision at the end of today's reading. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah's vision is compelling and not what you would expect. People might have thought that if they ever made it back to Jerusalem, the elders among them would enjoy watching the youth romp and play from the comfort of their rocking chairs. But no, in the kingdom of heaven, youth is not wasted on the young. Those of any age who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. It's a vision of vitality born not out of physical prowess, but trust and confidence in the Lord. Simply put, Isaiah wanted the people to keep such a vision of hope before their eyes. Hope would keep them going. We can hear the objections of a cynical world then and now. Hope is a lovely thing, but is it not a cruel trick to dangle the object of our desire ever before our eyes, but always out of reach? It reminds me of a story I once heard about how an older boy would taunt his younger brother. The older boy would say, tomorrow I am going to give you a wonderful chocolate bar. Really? said the young boy. Just you wait and see, said his older brother. Come into my room tomorrow. The next day, the younger brother came bounding into the older boy's room as if he were a dancer in leotards, but he received no chocolate bar. He protested, you said that today you would give me a chocolate bar. No, said the older brother. I said, tomorrow I will give you a chocolate bar. Now it's today. Come back tomorrow and I will give you a chocolate bar. Are God's promises like that, always pushed off to tomorrow, never to be realized today? Well, obviously, I wouldn't be doing what I do for a living if I didn't think God fulfilled his promises. The truth is the people did go home, and over time, they did rebuild Jerusalem. Then some 800 years after Isaiah spoke, Jesus came on the scene. The Babylonians were long gone, and the people were not in exile, but now the Romans occupied the land and ruled the Jews in their own city. Why? What was the meaning of it, if any meaning could be found at all in their oppression? Jesus had a different take on the problem of evil than the explanation Isaiah put forth. For Isaiah, much of our <coughs> spiritual and mental anguish was due to the inability of our finite minds to comprehend the infinite purposes of God. If we wait for the Lord, all will come clear. As for Jesus, he certainly believed in the providence of God. He certainly trusted that God knew what he was doing and would separate the wheat from the chaff on the last great day. But Jesus had a more militant streak in which he believed we all live in enemy-occupied territory. Who was the enemy? Not the Babylonians and not the Russians. 
taking up arms against them would only lead to more death, destruction, and displaced populations. So who was the enemy? It was deeper than any one corrupt king or wicked regime. Jesus believed that God's good world had been invaded by the powers of evil, which sought to corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. What is more, it was time to serve an eviction notice to Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. As Jesus traveled the countryside to preach and teach, he immediately began to draw crowds around himself. Why were they constantly searching for Jesus? What seems to have been so attractive about him is that when he spoke, he didn't push off the promises of God until tomorrow. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, is what he said in his hometown synagogue. Then he backed up his words with his works. In today's reading from the Gospel of Mark, we've heard how Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons. At other times, he made the lame to walk, gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and even life to the dead. Here was someone who embodied the hope that Isaiah foretold. God was truly on the move. The kingdom was at hand. Follow me, says Jesus, today, not tomorrow. Let's go. For me, and I pray for you, the emblem of hope that impels us onward is Jesus. His resurrection gives us a vision of humanity restored. Jesus is the hope of the world who shines like a beacon in history, revealing a new meaning and a new purpose to whatever difficult roads we have to walk. Lately, I've been reading excerpts from a book by someone who knew better than most what it, mean, what it meant to maintain hope in hopeless times. In 1942, Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist and neurologist working in Vienna. As a Jew, he and his family were arrested by the Nazis and sent to a series of concentration camps. For Viktor Frankl, the last of these was the death camp at Auschwitz. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Frankl describes the brutal conditions the forced marches through snow in shoes that gave little protection, the threadbare clothes against the bitter winter wind, the meager rations, the hard labor, the disease and filth, and the certain reality of punishment or even death for those who fell behind. Many of Frankel's fellow prisoners who were younger and physically stronger than he was withered and died. Frankel survived. Why? The answer is long and complex, and Frankel himself spent a lifetime working out the answer. But if it could be summed up in a word, the word would be hope. He came to understand that human beings have a continuing need to be striving for something yet beyond reach and that to lose faith in the future was to be doomed. 
Thus, Frankel held to a vision of his future, and he would not lose sight of it. He envisioned reunion with his pregnant wife and other members of his family. He imagined returning to his practice in Vienna, helping others through psychiatry and neurology. It finally came down to a choice between hope and despair. Since the Nazis had taken everything else from him, he determined that they would not take away his hope. For him, hope was a call from the future, from God's future. And the voice he intercepted said, love. The truth is that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. He wrote, the salvation of man is through love and in love. Isaiah preached good news to the people in exile to give them hope in their future. Jesus healed the sick, cast out demons, stretched out his arms on the hardwood of the cross, and rose victorious from the grave to give us hope, hope in a future we call the kingdom of God, where humanity is restored. With Jesus out in front, we press through difficult, even hopeless times. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen.